This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Welcome all our Torah Anytime viewers. Tonight's class, uh, the food is, uh, and the class is, that is actually sponsored by Anonymous. So thank you very much for the Anonymous uh, donors that help us with the delicious spread that we have over here that I'm sure is the only reason why we have such a beautiful crowd today. And a big crowd is because of the delicious food uh, that we have over here. Okay, again, so people who are always uh, welcome. So women are always welcome on Thursdays at BJX 1601 Avenue, Quentin Road. Thank you. 1601 Quentin Road at 8 p.m. usually. Uh, and uh, on, did I say all the information? Thursdays, 8 p.m. at 1601 Quentin Road, Brooklyn, New York. Blah, 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 zip code, I don't know, 11229, okay. Uh, men's class are on Tuesdays at 8 p.m. at Bed Juhuro at 6.30 Avenue S at 8 p.m. This uh, coming up week, there is not going to be a men's class, but we have another wedding, uh, you know, this coming this, so I'm not, one of the, one of the guys that are in the class is, is going to be getting married, Bizal Hashem, so the class is, um, can't say cancel, just postponed to next week, um, which is the next Tuesday. Uh, in any case, uh, everyone is always invited and encouraged to attend. Okay. So tonight, tonight we're going to be speaking about a, a very important idea that, to be honest, a lot of people that are from from birth and, well the truth is, everything that we speak about, people that even that have been religious since they were younger, don't really get to learn uh, much about. However, tonight I think even sticks out a little bit even more. What's going to be even more interesting is because majority of the time, let's say the, the, the men, what they spend when they're learning, they're spending Gemara. Majority of the time, they don't know actually the basis, the foundation of how it came about. So tonight, we're going to be uh, speaking about that. But we're not only, we're going to be speaking about the, the history of the Torah, not just the oral law. We're actually going to start from day six of creation. Um, and the reason for that is, is that I get very often questions that people ask that state basically that Judaism may have not been the first monotheistic religion. So um, to the ignorant people that ask me these questions, what I usually respond is, who said the idea of monotheism started with Judaism? The idea of monotheism started off way before Judaism. And in fact, the first person here, let's see if we could uh, open it up a little bit over here. The first person that spoke to God. Adam. Adam, very good. Second person, let's see how far we could go. Uh, before that, Chava, very good. Third, Kain, Kain, oh, very good. Okay, good. So, um, so what you see over here is that the the communication between God and human beings did not wait until Moshe Rabbeinu, did not wait until Har Sinai. We already had communication with God since the beginning of time, since literally when Adam was created. Now, when Adam was created, and of course Noah was also, you know, you know, uh, had prophecy, spoke to God, and we had many, many other prophets between Noah and Adam that also uh, spoke to uh, spoke to God. But what's very important is that God also gave Adam Harishon six commandments. He gave him six commandments. Later, a seventh one was added, and that was then it turned into instead of the six uh, Adam laws, it turned into the seven Noahide laws. But in essence, it actually came from the beginning from Adam. What came from Adam? Number one, the first law was you're not allowed to serve Abu Dazara. You're not allowed to you're not allowed to worship idolatry. That's number one. Number two, you're not allowed to curse God. Unfortunately, no matter how upset you get and how bad your day is and how whatever, 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 you're never allowed to curse God. Number three, you're not allowed to murder. This should be pretty easy for the majority of people. Um, number four is do not steal. Number five is gilu uh, arayot. So. Um, Immorality. So this is like no incest, no incest, no adultery, no homosexuality, no anything else. That's you know I, I think pretty pretty obvious. Number uh, six is to establish a court of laws. 
These six laws were given since the time of Adam Elishan. Which means is that the Torah wasn't the first time that a, and I'm using air quotes, that a religion was brought into the world by, you know, by God. In fact, already, and it's, you can't really call it, it's not, it wasn't really per se a religion, but it was. It was you had to follow certain laws in order to follow the way of God. And those were the six commandments that God gave to Adam Elishan from the beginning of time that this is what everybody need to, uh, need to follow, need to, I need to go, uh, go off. Then came Noach. And then a seventh one was, was added. A seventh one was added was, you're not allowed, Ever menachai. you're not allowed to eat from a live animal. Now why was this, anybody know why this was added now? Why, why, why not beforehand? Very good, excellent. Beforehand they didn't eat any meat. Only afterwards they ate, they started eating, uh, they started eating meat. So now that they started eating meat, the law was that you're not allowed to eat from a, a limb from a live animal. Uh, and uh, this would seem like common sense. Uh, unfortunately, um, there are certain uh, communities, countries in the Far East that tend to uh, disagree and they actually eat live animals. And I have seen, you know, they'll eat baby octopuses, they'll dip it in something and then they'll eat it. I've actually seen, and this is a delicacy, to eat live baby mice. Um, just if you don't know what part of the world it's coming from, um, then welcome to the 21st century and open up a newspaper. But if you really don't, it's, you know, the, you know, the far, the, 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 can't say the Asian community, but that part of the world has a particular delicacy with, I don't know, beetles, cockroaches, um, you know, other dog, uh, you know, animals that they, uh, that they tend to eat that the other parts of the world do not eat. But that's not such a problem. Because if they kill it, whatever it is, they're allowed to eat it, whatever. But if you're eating it live, then it's a problem. It's Tzar Balachayim, you're, you're uh, causing a lot of problems to the, uh, to the animals, a lot of uh, pain, and that is not allowed. And, and you see them, they actually eat it live. They actually eat it live. I don't understand it, uh, you know, and I hope to never understand it, but this is a very big problem. This is a violation of one of the seven Noahide commandments. But, so we see over here that even though the Torah, Judaism in itself, began about 3,300 years ago, the, the commandments from God already started since the beginning of time. Monotheism already was since the beginning of time. And uh, what, what brings it to, into an interesting point is there were yeshivot, there were schools of learning that were before the Torah was given. Like Shem Ve'evel, the yeshivat of Shem Ve'evel. We know that Yaakov bin learned in yeshiva Shem Ve'evel. What were they learning over there? They were reviewing the six, the seven laws again and again and again and again. What were they learning for so, for, for so long? And um, what's very interesting is also is why did Yaakov Avinu go to Shem Ve'evel? He just learned with Yitzchak, his father, his grandfather Abraham Avinu. He needed now to go to Shem Ve'evel to teach him something that he didn't learn. What was the difference that he learned over there that now he didn't learn over there? These are questions Bezat Hashem we're going to answer. We're going to throw one more question we'll answer later on. Is that Rivka... When she was uh, when she was expecting what she didn't know at that point in time was twins, she uh, she had a question because when she went by a place of impurities, she felt kicking. When she went by a place of holiness, she felt kicking. She was like, "What's going on over here?" So she went to Lidroshat Hashem. She went to go and seek God. Who did she go to? She went to Shivat Shem Ve'Evel. And what do they tell her? They tell her, "Shnei Goyim Bevetnech." You have two, you know, you have you have two nations in your in your in your in your room. And what's interesting is you look at Rashi over there. Rashi over there says that what is it referring to? It's referring to Rebbe and Antoninus. And the question is, what? 
out of all the Rebbe comes from Yaakov, Antonin has come from Esav, and that's what it's referring to. The question is, what are we talking about over here? Why, when Rivka, like, this is what's going on over here, when Rivka is going, she's like, why, you know, I have a bipolar kid, I don't know, I had two kids, what's going on over here? One wants to go out by impurities, one wants to go out in holiness, and I come all of a sudden to, you know, to, to the Shiva Tamev, and it says, no, there's two people, don't worry, many generations coming in the, in the future, there's going to be two people that come out from each one of these, and that's the reason for that. You have Antoninus and you have Rebbe. How does that answer anything? So, Bizarre Hashem will answer uh, this, uh, you know, later on in the class. So, the Gemaran Kedushin, in page 82, brings down that Abraham Avinu practiced and um, kept the entire Torah. Now, that seems pretty hard to do, because being that the Torah wasn't given yet. The question is, how did Abraham do that? How did Abraham Avinu keep the entire Torah? We know the Avot, the Shvatim, they kept the Torah. How did they keep the Torah if the Torah wasn't given yet? Not only that, it says that they even kept the oral law, the rabbinic law, even Eruf Tafshirin. The Gemara says, which means that even the rabbinic laws of Abraham Avinu kept. How did he keep it before it came in, into being? And the answer is Ramban in Genesis chapter 26 verse 5 says that he, he was able to, he was privy to this information through Ruach HaKodesh. He got this information through Ruach HaKodesh and that's why he kept, uh, you know, he kept the Torah. So this answers a very, very important question that I get asked uh, frequently when, um, when they start, at, when, when Bible critics, and we'll speak about this when we speak about Bible criticism, but when Bible critics, when people that are trying to criticize the Bible, they'll try to bring p- proofs how Judaism is actually copying from other religions. And Judaism is not really first in whatever it is that they, that they had. But an answer is that our Judaism, uh, not our Judaism, everyone's Judaism, actually traces back all the way to the beginning of time, but depending on the variance of the level of observance by who and by where and by when, it all actually uh, depends. But it didn't, uh, it started for an entire nation on, on, uh, on Har Sinai about 3,300 years ago, but it actually came into existence, it's a bad word. Incorrect word. It, it was actually practiced even before that. And where this comes into play, we'll see as we, uh, you know, as we speak about these issues that come up. But this is something that I do want you to keep in mind when we get up to the topic that we'll speak about the, those uh, uh, Bible critics. So, besides Abraham Abinu, we know Noah also had to know the Torah. How do we know that Noah had to know the Torah? It says that Noah had to, keep, to bring in seven of the kosher animals and only two of the impure animals. How does he know what's impure and what's kosher? How did he know that? He had to know. He had, granted, he had, so he had information that the majority of people did not have during, uh, during that time. The, Rav Yaakov, um, uh, Rav Yaakov Kamenetsky and Emes Yaakov brings down, it says, what did, what exactly was Yaakov Binu learning in Yeshivat Shem What was so important over the, like what could he get over there that he didn't get from Yitzhak Avinu? And the answer that, uh, Rav Yaakov Kamenetsky brings down and says something very beautiful, that he was learning the Torah of the Galut, the Torah of the exile, which means is, when he learned with Yitzchak, he was learning, when Yaakov learned with Yitzchak, he was learning in a secluded environment, there was no distractions, he was learning and he was able to focus on whatever, on all his learning. Now he knew that he was going out into the world. He is going to eventually come to Lavan, a very deceiving, you know, person that tries to manipulate everything and try to take everything out. Now he had a problem. How am I supposed to keep the Torah in that environment? I know how to keep the Torah in a good environment, but I need to learn how to keep the Torah in that type of environment. So where did he go? He went to Yeshivat Shem Ve'eva. Shem Ve'eva lived through the time of the, of the, of uh, the Tower of Babel, the, um, the Dora Flaga, they, they, they lived through the whole manipulation trying to fight against God. They lived through that. It says, ah, they know how, they know how to play this game. They know how to wor- live according to righteous life, even in, in bad places. So he says, Yaakov, you know, I'm gonna go and learn in Yeshiva Chen And this is something very important. I don't know if you guys are gonna be able to, uh, um, guess this one. But of all the Shvatim, actually you should be able to guess this one. Um, I shouldn't say guess, you should be able to say this one. Out of all the Shvatim, which one do we know that Yaakov Avinu learned the most by? Yosef. Yosef. Very good. Close one of the that's an interesting, uh, you know, thought. But Yosef, 
What, what was so interesting about it? Now, of course, he taught you know, all the Shatim, but what was so particular about Yosef? Yosef was eventually going to go into exile. He was going to go into Egypt. He's going to be in a very impure. What did Yaakov teach him all the time? He, turned, he taught them the Torah of the Galos, the Torah of what he learned in Shem Ever. How are you going to be a good Jew when you get into uh, Egypt? When you get into the most impure place in the world, you need to learn how to be a good Jew. I learned it from Yeshiva Shem Ever, and now you're going to be able to learn it as well. And this is what, he's ta- this is what you know, he taught Yosef. So we see over here that the Torah um, and the laws itself was actually practiced before it actually came into, it came into uh, being into a national uh, level. The Torah was actually, there were many laws that were given actually before Har Sinai. For example, you have Rosh Chodesh that was given before Har Sinai. You also have Koban Pesach that was given before Har Sinai. You also in Mara, the, uh, the, the Pasuk tells us that there were three laws that were given in, uh, at, at Mara. What are they? Number one, Shabbat which was given again before the Torah was given. Number two, the laws of the red cow. And number three, the laws of civil, of, of civil you know, ordinances, like you know, money matters and dispute and things like that. So the question is asked, ask the morale, why specific, particularly these three things were given before the Torah was given? As we see, the Torah was actually, there were laws that were given before the actual Torah was given. And um, the morale answers, and it says, number one, Shabbat was given because there's so many laws to Shabbat. It's tremendous amount of information that you need to learn to, to understand Shabbat. So he said, this is the time when the Jews have to start practicing and learning these things. Then the red cow. The red cow is, doesn't have as many laws as Shabbat, but it's so deep that no one can understand it. And when you're learning for para aduma, when you're learning the, about laws, about the red cow, you're learning it l'shem shema. You're learning it for the sake of learning it, not for any other reason, because it's very difficult to understand it. And number three, the money, um, they, they learned the laws of, of, uh, um, of dinim, of, of money and, and civil ordinances, is according to the, the Gemara in Baba Batra, page 175b, it speaks and says that if somebody wants to become wise, he should learn the laws of monetary affairs. Why? Because when you're dealing with a monetary case, every single nuance, every single detail completely changes the case. And that's why when, I, you know, when, when people call up for questions, whatever it is, they don't understand. Like if someone's asking you know, a particular question, one tiny detail could change the entire answer of what the rabbi gives you. So when you're calling a rabbi and when you're giving information, it is very, very important to give every single... What you might think is insignificant, it could be very, very significant. And you have to give all this detail to the rabbi because one nuance over here might change the law completely to something else. And that's, that's why the... the um, the, the laws of monetary affairs are if you want to become wise you have to know everything because you have every little change you're constantly your brain is constantly working like a machine it has to be like okay what about I'm going to do this what about if this happens what if he says this what if she said there's so many differences that come into play explains the morale says before the Torah was given God had to accustom the Jewish people to know how to think this way to know how to understand the Torah to know how to penetrate the depths of the Torah that's why it's particularly they gave these three things Shabbat for all its details of laws you should know the Torah has a lot of details you have to know exactly what to do the monetary laws know how to perceive that every single iota of a difference can change the, the, the entire law in its entirety and finally the, the paraduma that even though the, the ultimate purpose of learning it is learning it Hashem Shema I'm learning it for the, uh, you know, for the right sake for the right purpose so that was before the Torah was given. Now we're moving forward in time to when the Torah was actually given. When the Torah was actually given, the, the, um, there's a Rashi in Shemot, page 20, uh, chapter 20, verse 1, that says, Et kol elu, all these things, That God gave the entire Ten Commandments in one saying. It was like one in, not a t- yeah, unintelligible sound. It was like just one sound. Everything is just all the sarsidibus over there. All the Ten Commandments came in one sound. Now we can understand it, um, but if you could, if you think um, the way that I thought to, to, to explain this, and this is a very bad example, but I think it will just give you a step in the right direction. 
we deal in like you know practically three dimensions, right? Um, more or less, the majority of people in the, you know in the world, um, whatever you want to go to the super you know higher the four dimension. But imagine when you having different dimensions that come into play, like you would be able to perceive things more than you actually perceive things now. When God gave the Torah, he, was, he gave the Torah in one sound. Now we can't understand that. How does one sound get all the Ten Commandments? But one sound gave all the Ten Commandments. Now why did God do that? God did that because to show you that the entire Torah is one essence. It's actually in one essence. Now, it was, it was not... It, it, you know, it, it, they couldn't understand it. Because it's like well, just one sound. It didn't make any sense there you know, to, to the human, uh, human uh, brainwaves. But what then God did is God went and, and uh, said each and every single commandment uh, separately. Now... Here is a, um, here's another question. How many commandments did the Jewish people hear from God directly? Two. Anybody else say anything else other than two? Machlok hmm? is always a good answer. But what's all the answer? I know it's true. Very. Oh, excellent. Everybody go to her school. Whatever it is. Okay. Oh, that's where you got that from? Very good. Oh, wow. Revitin in the making. Okay, excellent. So... The, actually, it's a machloket. It's a machloket. There's a midrash in Shira Shirim. In, in Shira Shirim, that says like this that what the Chachamim said that all ten commandments were actually given by God. It was all ten, the Jewish people heard all ten commandments. Rabbi Yeshua says, no, only the first two. What happened was is that when, he, when they heard the, the first one, they all heard God's voice and they all died. God took the dew that he, God is going to resurrect the people by the time of Mashiach, resurrected them, and he's like, okay, now that you guys are all back, here's number two. And they all died again. And now God brought back the dew and they resurrected again. And then God was like, be like, okay, let's do it. And they were like, no, 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 please do me a favor. He says, we died twice already. Tell the rest of Moshe Rabbeinu. We'll, you know, we'll just go through that. So that's according to, you know, that, that, is, that is how Rabbi Yeshua explains that. They only said the, the, you know, the first two. But the, um, the, the, there's a Midrash in Bamidbar Abba that says that all 630 commandments are actually included in the Ten Commandments, which means the Ten Commandments are the foundation, and all 613 branch out from that. The Gemara in Makot says not only only the Ten Commandments, but even the first two commandments, the entire 613 commandments actually branch from the first two commandments. And the Gemara goes and explains every positive mitzvah is represented by Ani Hashem Elokecha, I am the Lord your God. Every positive commandment is represented by that. Every prohibition, every isu, is every negative commandment is is by is by the second commandment, which is that you should not have any other gods besides me. And so, in essence, what, what's so important about this that what we see over here is that the Jewish people, in a in a different aspect, they actually heard the entire Torah from God. Whether it's the Ten Commandments, whether it's the first two, it doesn't matter. They heard the entire Torah, uh, you know, directly uh, directly uh, from God. So, let's move forward in history. The Torah was given, Moshe was given, Moshe wrote it down. When did Moshe write down the Torah? Just an FYI, he wrote it 40, year, 40 years after the Torah was given, which means this is first started only as oral. Now, there are things written down here and there, of course, for notes, but the, the way that the Torah that we have it today was written for the first time after about 40 years after the Torah was given, right before Moshe passed away. That's when he wrote the Torah. Until then, everything was, was kept oral. After the Torah was given, it started a time period of known as the Nevi'im, the prophets. This is where the prophets uh, you know, came to being. Does anybody uh, venture to guess how many prophets we had around? 1.2 million. Again, go to the school, guys. Okay? Very good. So, 
at 1.2, uh, um, uh, roughly around 1.2 million profits. It's double amount of people that we love from from uh, Mitzrayim. The, this is the Gemara Megillah, page 14a. But the, the, the prophets that we have written down, the only prophets that we have written down are only the prophecies that had a message for the future generations. So there are many prophets that prophesied during that time, but it wasn't written down into, into the, the prophets. Why? Because those were dealt only for that particular time period, had nothing to do with the future generations, and hence it, wasn't, it didn't have to be kept. But anything that was for the future generations, that's where it, uh, um, that's where it was uh, put into play. The difference between Torah and Nach. Right, so we have Torah, which is the Chamishay Chamishay Torah. Then you have Nach, the Nevi'im, and the Ketuvim. What is the difference over there? The Torah comes from the word Hora'ah, which means instruction. The Torah is an instruction manual, how to live your life. The Nach was, was a, a very big part of it, was to inspire people to do tshuva, to do repentance, to make sure that they go and they go into the, uh, into the right direction. Now, what is the difference between the Nevi'im and Ketuvim? Now, this is a girls' class, so you guys should be aware of basically, men's have no, men have no idea, like, they don't know the difference between Nevi'im and Ketuvim. Uh, but women actually, you know, that go through the, the schooling system actually do learn about these things. So, the, the Nevi'im, the Nevi'im is on a higher level than the Ketuvim, uh, on a, basically the, the level of the, the communication between uh, God to the prophet or God to the, you know, what, you know to, to the people was on a higher level. And the, um, the idea also, the difference is, is that the Nevi'im, the prophecy was, it was first a prophecy, so it was spoke to the people, and then it was written down. The Ketuvim, the writings, was meant only particularly for writing it down. That was the initial, uh, the initial reason for it was, was for, was to be written down. The, the, but we said before, the Nevi'im are holier, and that's why all the Haftarot that we read on after on Shabbat, after the, we read the Kriyat Torah from the Chamshechem Shatua, from the five books of Moses, all those afterwards actually come from the Nevi'im and not from the, uh, not from the Ketuvim. Okay. The, after the 24 books of Tanakh were, were closed and sealed, this is where prophecy ended, the books were closed, and uh, there was no, you can't add any more. This is why, by the way, we don't have any book on, on, uh, on Hanukkah. Now, even though Hanukkah, um, we, there is the Sefer Maccabi, there is different books that are in existence, but it didn't make it in Tanakh because that's when prophecy ended. When prophecy ended, it doesn't, the, the, Tanakh was, the Tanakh was closed. However, the Torah obviously continued, and the Torah continued to be, you know, to be learned from, and there was many more information that needed to be uh, put into play. However, all this was all, put, was all based on oral, the oral Torah. Now, it wasn't, and this was incorrect, I shouldn't have said there was a new information. This was all, and I don't know if I said that, but um, if I did, that's wrong. So, did I say that? I didn't say that. What am I even talking about? So, why are you guys causing problems? The beginning of this. Okay. So, um, the, the oral law continued to, you know, to happen, because everybody was teaching, uh, you know, based on the oral law. But here is where things started to change uh, drastically. What happened was, is after the destruction of the first Bet HaMikdash, there, uh, the Jewish nation was not ruled by their own anymore. They were ruled by a foreign government, and not only that, Christianity started picking up. And uh, needless to say, Christianity wasn't buddy-buddy with the Jews, uh, you know, per se. There were also persecutions that were going on against the Jews. The Jews were being spread out into exile throughout the entire world. Problems were happening for the Jewish nation. Now, during this time, there, you know, the, the rabbis realized that the oral law was supposed to be kept oral. But because of all the problems, because of the persecution, because of the people in exile, because of the weakening of the minds of the Jewish people, people are going to start forgetting the oral law. So what, did, what, what happened? What did the rabbis do? The rabbis decided that the oral law needs to be placed in writing. It needs to be placed, and for the first time in history, it was placed in writing for a public, uh, you know, for the, for the public forum. 
Previously, you know, you had rabbis that wrote their own personal notes and things like that, but it was never placed in writing as, a, as an official, uh, you know, official book. Only came uh, the, 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 the Mishnah, which was where the, the writing came into, uh, it came into being. Now, the, and you have to bear with me, whoever is not familiar with the Mishnah and the Gemara, just, just bear with me. I might say some words you might not understand. The majority of you, I, I, I would venture to say, do understand what I will be talking about. The, during the Mishnah, there were, there were, the rabbis were known as the Tanaim. The Tanaim lived from the time of 30 BCE to roughly around 200 Common Era. So you're talking about roughly 230 years that... Yeah, but does that make sense? Yeah, so about roughly around 230 years that they, um, <coughs> that they were in existence. There were five generations of Tanaim. Generation number one was Bet Shammai and Bet Hillel, which I'm sure everybody here is familiar with. That was the first generation of Tanaim. Generation number two was Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, Rabbi Gamliel, Rabbi Leza ben Horkinus, and the convert Unculus. Unculus actually had, was in the time of, um, you know, in the, in the second generation of the Tanaim. What, what, the reason why I like doing, why I like going through the generations is that many people hear different ideas, you know, throughout their schooling or throughout coming closer to Judaism. They hear different ideas, but when you put things in order, it puts them in a completely different, different perspective. It says, oh, we lived in during this time. Usually we hear a rabbi, we just hear like a rabbi. We have no idea anything else about him. You don't know the area that lived, you know, if he lived in Israel, in, 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 uh, in Babylon, you don't know where he lived. So we'll try, let's try to put a little picture to this. That we'll, we'll give you a very strong understanding on uh, Judaism. So Unculus lived in the second generation of the Tanaim. Generation number three, you had Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva, very, very famous. He was generation number three. Generation number four, you had Rabbi Meir, Rabbi Shem, Bar Yochai, the Rashbi, which was attributed to Zohar, um, and a few others. And in generation five, you had Rabbi Yehuda Anasi. And I'm not going through all the rabbis during the generation. I'm just giving the ones that uh, I would assume most people would know. Rabbi Yehuda Anasi was... Who, who? I didn't hear you. Well, they lived, uh, you know, two generations apart. Um, uh, you know, three generations apart. So did they overlap? Could be. It's possible. I don't know. Um, but Rabbi Yehuda Nasi lived in the, in the fifth generation. Unculus was in the second generation. So Rabbi Yehuda Nasi is the, um, you know, the, the star of, of the Mishnah. Now what I mean by that is Rabbi Yehuda Nasi, he, the, the, you know, people think that he wrote the Mishnah. This is a very, very you know, incorrect statement. He did not write the Mishnah. He simply edited it. He, there, was a, there was a tremendous amount of information that came through these five generations of Tanaim that came down with all, there wasn't just these rabbis, as I said, there was plenty of rabbis. There was so many rabbis that came during, their, during that time. And, you know, what, they were explaining the oral law. Rabbi Yehuda Nasi went, he edited all the information and he put it into writing into the, uh, into the Mishnah um, that we have uh, today. Now, why did he all of a sudden he put it into, into, into writing? He saw that the time was coming that it was basically a now or never situation. That if he doesn't do it right now, the Jews are being exiled. Problems are happening. And if he doesn't do something right now, that's it. It's going to be the end of Judaism. Judaism is not going to be able to continue as we know it. They're not going to remember the oral law. So he decided he's going to be putting it, put it into writing. Now, the way that he put it into writing is a fascinating story. It's so amazing because it's not like you know, a rabbi was just thinking, be like, you know what? I think it's time. You know, he takes out his, you know, his, uh, you know, his uh, what is it called when you write a book, but you don't, the transcript? I don't know, what is it called when you write a book? Well, a manuscript. Takes out a manuscript from Dusty things like, okay, I've been working on this for so long. Okay, now I can publish it. Call Arts, call, uh, Arts didn't exist yet. Calls all the publishers, Feldheim, right? And he says, okay, listen, I have a thing I want to buy. It wasn't, it wasn't something like that. It was, it was, it had to be a very opportune time. Not only that, that he felt there was a need for it, but also from the other side, from the secular side, it had to, it wasn't very, it wasn't so simple to just start, start writing it. He had to call all the rabbis in from all over the world, come in and they sat together. It wasn't just him alone that he did it. He did, so how, did, how was he able to do this? So in order to understand this, we have to understand of this literally miraculous friendship 
by two people. One was Rebbe and one was by Antoninus. Antoninus was the Roman emperor during that time. And Antoninus was, and, and Rebbe, they had a very, very close relationship. So much so that Antoninus' summer home was, and this, by the way, is many attributed to Marcus Aurelius Antoninus, that his summer home was in Caesarea, which was near to Rebbe's home, which was in the Galil. And what he did was, he respected Rebbe so much. And if you go, you go look at the Gemara, Nabod Azarah, page 10b, says like this, says that... Uh, that, that Antonina so much respected Rebbe that I actually wanted to learn on the Rebbe. And he, what he did was, is that he put his house, his summer home, next to Rebbe's house, and he made a tunnel from his house to Rebbe's house, so he'd be able to sneak back and forth from Rebbe. Now, why did he have to sneak? Because it wouldn't look so good for the Roman government, that, you know, the pagan Roman government, be like, all right, or, you know, or like slowly soon becoming Christian Roman government, be like, okay, listen, I'm going to go learn behind the rabbi. This, is, this was a suicide mission. Like, he couldn't go and he couldn't outright, you know, say that he was going to uh, study or going to to speak to uh, the biggest rabbi of the world during that time. So, but what Antoninus did, he, he built this tunnel, and this is where you'll be able to sneak. And he told Rebbe, he says, every time when I call, when I am going to come, make sure that nobody's here. No one's allowed to know because of the, the, you know, the severity of the situation. Of the, not only was it a danger to, to, to him, it was a danger to Rebbe also. If the Roman government found out that Rebbe, and, you know, it would be a problem for Rebbe and for Antoninus. He says, no one's allowed to know. What? Well, his parents didn't name him, hey, this is the name of his Rebbe. His name was Yehuda Hanasi, but we know him as Rebbe. We know him as Rebbe because of the work that he was able to do. He's known as the rabbi, you know, because of what, of what he did. So, okay. So, um, so, yeah, when I say Rebbe, I mean Rebbe Yehuda Hanasi. What happened was, is that one time, you know, Rebbe had one of his students over there, <coughs> Hanina Bar Chama, he was sitting over there, and all of a sudden Antonina shows up. He comes in through the, you know, the back door, you know, through that tunnel, and the, he says, what's going on up here? I says, I told you that there's no one allowed to be over here. So Rabbi, uh, Rabbi says, says, don't worry about it. This is no ordinary human being. The, you know, the Rabbi Hanina Bar Chama here is no ordinary human being. So he says, really? So says Antoninus. He says, okay. So uh, Antoninus says, and I have to give you a little bit of pre-information uh, beforehand. Antoninus, he was Roman emperor. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't befitting for him to just walk to Rabbi by himself in the tunnel. What he did was he took two guards with him. But which guards did he make guards? He took people that were on death row. And he took two of them with him. And when he walked, when he walked, when he walked under the, under the tunnel, when he got into Rebbe's house, he killed one of them. And then he had only one. And then when he walked back to his house, he killed the other one. And that's how he kept on going back and forth. So, um, it was, it was, they were guarding. It, was, it just wasn't befitting for a king, for a Roman emperor to go by himself. So, um, It was very, very kind of him. Um, if you know anything about the Roman, uh, you know, the, the Roman governorship, they didn't have, it, it wasn't, there wasn't a, you know, they, they didn't have a deficiency of people that were needing uh, death row. So um, he go and he would take them and he would slaughter one and slaughter other. So he comes in, right before he goes into Rebbe, he does his, you know, his, his regular ritual, kills um, one slave, slaughters him, the body stays over there, he walks in. He walks in with one other slave, he walks in and he sees now this scenario, he sees Rebbe is speaking to Rebbe Hanina Bahama, and he says, you know, what's going on over here? I told you you can't do it here. So Rebbe says, don't worry about it, this guy is, you know, you say this guy, says this, this, is, this person is not from the, you know, not, not your regular uh, typical uh, person. So Antonius says, oh, is that so? He says, do me a favor. He goes to Rebbe Hanina Bahama. He says, my servant is outside, do me a favor, Tell, call him inside over here. So Rebbe Hanina Bahama goes out, this is a dead body sitting on the floor over here. And he's thinking, like, what am I supposed to do? He says, on one hand, I can't go and tell him, listen, he's dead. He should not be a beer of bad news. I can't run away because it's not going to look good. He's going to run away from the emperor. It's, you know, it's not befitting for the emperor. So he's thinking what to do. He's not knowing what to do. So he starts praying. He starts praying and he brings the guy back to life. He takes the guy back to life. He says, come here. I have to, you know, he comes here. He walks in and says, here, here's your servant over here. So Antonina sees all of a sudden his slave, all of a sudden back to life. So he goes, okay. 
says, all right, I see what you're saying over here. He says, but no more. Starting now, you get for reals, you know. No more. There's, you're not going to have anybody, you know, that, that's coming in, you know, Tehra. And these were the rabbis that you're, we're dealing with over here. Rabbis were able to bring people back from the dead. Now, they didn't do it. As you see, they do it as a last resort. But we had a few scenarios, a few cases of rabbis actually bringing people back from the dead. So it wasn't your run-of-the-mill type of rabbis, you know, you know just your general long-bearded, you know, you know, fellows with the big coats and the big, you know, big hats. That you're talking about people that are, you are on a completely different level that we could even ever imagine. Now, we could go and answer one of the questions that we started off with. We started off with a Rivka had a question. She was going in front of a place that's impurity, a baby was kicking. She was going in front of a place of purity, a baby was kicking. She says, what's going on? She went to Shiva Shem Rashi says over there, what is it referring to? It's referring to Antonius and Rabbi. What's talking about over here? Now it makes a little bit more sense. Rivka was nervous. What was Rivka nervous? She heard that now she's going to have one good son, one bad son. She says, what's going to be? She says, what's going to be when the bad son is going to go and is going to try to influence the, the, the good son? What's going to happen? So, so what, what did, the, what did the Yeshiva Shem Be'er says? You don't worry about it. Rashi goes and explains it. It says that eventually out of Esav is going to come somebody by the name of Antoninus. And out of Yaakov is going to come out, out of him is going to come um, Rebbe. Just FYI, just a slide little throw in a little bit of Kabbalah going on over here. Um, Rebbe is a Gilgul, a reincarnation of, Esav, of Yaakov. And the... And that um, Antoninus was a reincarnation of Esau. But that, putting that aside, they, she said, you know, the, she was told by Yeshiva Shem Abel, don't worry. Why didn't you worry? Because from these two, they're going to be able to bring about the continuation of Judaism through the oral law, through the Mishnah, that Rebbe is going to be able to write it down. But how was Rebbe able to write it down? Only because he had that close relationship with the Roman ruler. Because if he wouldn't have had the relationship with the Roman ruler, he wouldn't be able to, you know, this is a, this is, you're talking about something that is, un, un, you don't understand the level of what he needed to do with this. He had to go, he had to collect all the rabbis from all over the world. He, and this wasn't just like a, a meeting, you know, like a conference table, you know, like everyone... He gave him the permission to do it. He gave them permission. He gave him the okay. Antoninus did so much for Rebbe. We didn't have the time to go in there. He gave him money. He gave him plenty. Rebbe didn't need it. Rebbe was extremely wealthy. And because Rebbe was so wealthy, he was able also, he also, a, a lot of the rabbis that came in to help him for this writing of the, of the Mishnah, you know, this is what they did for the majority of their lives. Rebbe supported them. Rebbe funded the entire thing from A to Z. So, Rebbe was only able to do that only because Antoninus. Says, you know, Yeshiva Shem Be'eva to Rivka, don't worry about it, even though this one is bad and this one's good, but you'll see from the bad there's going to come out somebody that's going to be good, and he's going to help the, the good to go and, and make sure that the, the Torah is going to be able uh, to, uh, to continue. The question that we need to now deal with is how did Antoninus get that? How did Antoninus, you know, Roman rulers in general are not very known to be like, yeah, I love the rabbi, sci-fi rabbi, you know, yeah, I love you. Yeah. you know, it's just not known for that. How did Antoninus get that? How did Antoninus get the ability, get the spiritual qualities to be able to go through with it? And the answer is, we go look at the Gemara of Zarah, and this is also based off the explanation of a Menorah Tamaol, Rabbi Yitzhak that goes and explains like this. It says, when Rebbe was born, now again, remember, Rebbe was not his name when he was born, his name was Rebbe Yehuda Hanasi. Uh, again, his name was not Rebbe, and it wasn't Hanasi, it was just Yehuda. But, so when he was born, um, his father, Rebbe Yehuda Hanasi's father, uh, wanted to circumcise him. There was just one slight problem. You are not allowed to circumcise anybody. And so much so that it was a you know, death penalty. It was a very, very big problem that if you, if you circumcise your child, it was, you know, you're getting punished by the, by the Roman government. And Rabbi Huda's father said, I don't care, I'm still going to circumcise him. And he went and he circumcised him. The problem was that the Roman officials found out. And they found out that Rebbe was getting, that the Rebbe was circumcised. So they went and they, and they, and they, and they caught basically the entire Rebbe, his father, Rebbe and his parents. And they said, now you're going to go judge. You're going to go into the Roman government. 
what did they do? They didn't have any other option. They started walking with, they started traveling together with the Roman, uh, with the Roman government to go and get judged based on if they, you know, if they had a circumcision or if they did not. As they were traveling, they had to stop by an inn, a hotel. And when they stopped by this hotel, Rebbe's mother and the hotel's owner's mother started to get friendly. And they were talking. They said, oh, so where are you going? Where are you traveling? She says, oh, we're going to the Roman, uh, you know, to the Roman government. She says, why are you going there? She says, you know, we're Jewish people and, you know, you know, it's, we, you know, the, the, the pro, there's a prohibition on circumcising. And she actually opened up to, to, to this hotel's owner's wife and he says, listen, he says, you know, we actually did circumcise our son. Now, I don't know what's going to happen. It's going to be, you know, what, what's going to be, but we did circumcise the son and that's what we're going to right now. So the hotel owner's wife, you know, is thinking, she says, listen, she says, I also just had a child, roughly about the same age, same age as your child, and he was also a boy. He says, and this boy, I didn't circumcise him, obviously, because I'm Roman, and, you know, wasn't interested in circumcising it. He says, I have an idea for you. So let's swap babies. You take my baby, I'll take your babies, you'll go up over there, you'll show that the baby is not circumcised, and then on the way back, you pass by the inn, and we'll swap back. And uh, they agreed. All sides agreed to that, and that's what they did. They swapped the babies, and they continued traveling. When they started traveling, they brought the baby. Uh, you know, Rebbe. Uh, you know, Rebbe's parents brought the you know the baby in front, and the you know the Roman ruler says, you know, so the Roman government says, I hear that you circumcise your child. By all means, open the open the diaper. Oh, I wasn't a diaper back then. I don't think, you know, um, uh, what was a. What are companies of diapers? Huggies, thank you. I, I change my kids' diapers all the time. I don't remember the what are, Huggies and Pampers and whatever it is, right? So they didn't come into existence, yeah? The, um, so they went and they opened up the diaper, the cloth, whatever, and they see the baby's not circumcised. So they go to the Roman guy who brought them. He's like, I don't understand what you're talking about. This guy's not circumcised. So I, 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 I saw them circumcised. I don't know what you're talking about. He looks over there, not circumcised, not circumcised. They more close the case and says, yeah, you know, you, know, you know, go on your way. So they go and they continue walking back. They walk back. And they get back to the, to the hotel, they swap the babies, and then they continue. But the baby started, you know, they, they, you know, the parents, they still kept in contact. I don't know if they had play dates, whatever they had. And they still kept, you know, kept in contact. Who was this baby? The baby, we know one of them was Rabbi Yehuda. The other baby was Antoninus. His parents were the owners of the hotel, and he was the one who was, he was, the one who was switched during that time. Now, not only was he switched during that time, now, you know, Enfamil and all the other baby formulas didn't come into existence either yet. Um, so the, you know, Rebbe's mother nursed Antoninus, and Antoninus's mother nursed Rebbe. And it's interesting halacha. You know, are you, is a, is a Jewish baby allowed to nurse from a non-Jewish woman? No. So it actually is. You are allowed to. Halacha bottom line, it's not recommended, um, but you are allowed because it clouds the heart. But what, what does it do when it clouds the heart? Like so much so, and you hear, to explain this, we're going to explain, um, Sarah Emenu. When Sarah gave birth, to uh, Yitzchak, a lot of people didn't believe that she really gave birth. She was so old, it didn't make sense over here. You adopted, oh, something was going on up here. So they brought their babies, let's see if you can nurse. So I, I, I always wondered how that conversation, the first one came down. You know, like, knock, knock, you know, like, yes, you're like, you Sarah? Yeah, I don't believe you had a baby. Here, nurse my child. Like, that inform the way that it started, but in any ways, you know, that's how it happened. They went, uh, well, that's not exactly how it happened. I, you know, the, it, the story happened. And she went and she nursed, the, the, you know, the babies. To prove that the only way that you're able to nurse is actually if you are pregnant and, you know, that that way the the milk is is produced. So she went and she nursed the babies. These babies, even though that the parents came not for a good reason, they were still nursed by Sarah. And because they were nursed by Sarah, they still were imbued with the Yachimai. They were were imbued with with fear of heaven. And later, these are the babies that converted. Later, these are the babies that that had that. Now, even if it wasn't for the good reason, it it doesn't matter it was converted. Even even more so, you look at, for example, Yishmael. The difference between Yishmael and Esav. Esav, we have a lot of converts that come out of Esav. Yishmael, not so many. Why not? 
Because Yishmael comes from Hagar. And Esav comes from Rivka. The di- there's a difference when, when, you're, when you're nurturing a child. And by the way, they say that the child is more like the mother than the father. Because the mother gives an essence to the child. The mother you know, holds a child for nine months. And then it nurses a child. So a part of the mother goes into the child. And that is why you have the, genera- the, the descendants of Esav more converted. Because they had, they had, they had I'm sorry, they had um, Rivka as a... As a as an ancestor, as opposed to the mother of Yishmael, which was Hagah, which didn't have the same, obviously, close to the, the Yirat Shemaim as Rizka had. So, we see over here that, that there's a big difference that makes, that takes into effect over here. So from this, from the nursing that Antonina's got from Rebbe's mother, that's what he had the strong affinity all of a sudden to Judaism. And something very interesting also, Rebbe also was nursed from the, from the other side. It was, it was nursed from, from Antonina's mother. The oral law is not allowed to be written down. The laws had to be bent a little bit. I mean, obviously, halakhically, he was allowed to do what he was able to do, but he had to think a little bit outside the box. Where did he get that from? Because he was nursed from, uh, you know, he was nursed from Antoninus, Antoninus's mother. Now, still, even so, he was nursed from the mother. And we know, like, for example, Moshe Rabbeinu, when he was nursed a little bit, you know, from non-kosher milk, he had his tongue burnt. What about Rebbe? Rebbe was a holy soul. He was still nursed from a, from a non-Jewish woman. So it says that's why he had, he had 13 years of Yisurim. What type of Yisurim, what type of suffering did Rebbe go through? He went through mouth pains. He went through mountains for 13 years to go and cleanse himself from any of the impurities. Now again, not that it was a sin, not that it was a problem today, but it was putting himself on a high, much higher level that he was able to go through the, all these, uh, all these Yisurim to fix, uh, to fix these, uh, to fix these problems. If we have time, maybe I'll explain a little bit more on that, but I don't know if we'll have time for that today. So, Rebbe realized now that this is the time. He had the opportunity. He had the finances to do it. He had the Roman government backing him. He had a lot of things that were going for him. He says, it's now or never. And he decided, you know what? Now I'm gonna, he's going to put the Mishnah into being. And that's where he put the Mishnah. He edited the Mishnah together. And he separated into, this is Shisasitre Mishnah. This is the six orders of the Mishnah. This is where he separated it. So you have one of them is Zerayim, which has the agricultural laws. You have number two, you have the, the Moed, which is the laws of Shabbat and the festivals. You had Nashim, which speaks about marriage and family law, and Ezekim, which speaks about civil and criminal law, and you have Kochim, which speaks about the temple and divine service, and finally, the sixth one, Tarot, which speaks about ritual impurity. Purities. Um, so, but even when you look at the Mishnah, the Mishnah itself, think of it as chapter headings. You still can't figure everything out just by the Mishnah. It's just like, here's a reminder, shorthand notes. This is what you need to know. So Rebbe still made it Oral in a non-oral way, which means is here is the information, here is the index cards that you need to learn to learn how to learn the oral law. But you still need the rabbis, you still need to have guidance. You st- majority of it still uh, was still kept uh, was still kept oral. Now, while just like when the Torah was given to Moshe Rabbeinu, it was also given with the oral law. When Rebbe wrote down the 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 Mishnah, he also gave over something called brisos. Now, the brisos was also the explanation to the Mishnah. And later, you know, this is where it came into into, uh, into writing. Shortly after the Mishnah was, was written down, there was uh, additional significant changes that were happening to the Jewish life. The, there was, uh, the Roman government was ruling Israel and wasn't ruling Israel so kindly and so nicely. And the, the, a majority of the Jews, not a majority, a lot of the Jews started moving to Babylon, to Babel. And not only that, the sages also moved over there. And, um, and this is where you, you begin the time period of the Amoraim. The Amoraim were the people that lived during the time of the Gemara, when the Gemara was written down. So the Tanaim was during the time of the Mishnah, the Amoraim were during the time of the, of the Gemara. This was seven generations. So we said the Mishnah was five generations, the, the Gemara was seven generations. It ranged from the year 200 Common Era to about the year 500 Common Era. 
I think 499, the death of Ravina, if you want to be exact. There were seven generations. So generation number one, let's go through it really quickly. You have Rav, Shmuel, Rabbi Chia, Rabbi Aishia. Generation two, you have Rav Huna, Rabbi Barbachana. Generation number three, you have Rav Chizda, Rav Sheshes, Rav Zera. Generation number four, you had Rabbi, Rabbi Yosef. You have generation number five, Abaya and Rava. Those are very important names. We'll speak about it. We'll, we'll come back to them. Generation number six, you had Rav Papa, Rav Nachman, Bar Yitzchak. And generation number seven, you have Ravina and Rav Ashi, which is also very, very important, which we'll speak about very soon. So during this time, we had, you know, in Surah and Pupadita, you had all these yeshivot that came into, came into place. You had these big rabbis that came into yeshivot. There was also something called the Yarche Kala. Anybody know what Yarche Kala is? Very good. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. Very good. So we have a few more schools that we can recommend. Yeah, we got a few more schools. So Yarche Kala was a time that, so the majority of the Jewish people, where did they live? They lived off the land. They were, they were farmers. There were two months during the year where farm life, you know, was kind of dead. So what did they do? They didn't go to Miami and, you know, to relax over there. They actually went... Again, Miami probably didn't exist, yeah? Um, they, uh, you know, um, what is the name I'm saying? I found the blue, definitely didn't come into that yet. They actually went and they went to Yeshiva for two months. So when they weren't working, they actually sat, and this was Yerachi Kala, this is where they went and they learned for two months, you know, over there. This is during the time of the Amoraim. The Amoraim, the main, one of the main objectives of the Amoraim was to explain the Mishnah. Because the Mishnah was very brief. So now there was a lot of explanation that needed to come out during the Mishnah. And that's why when you open up a Gemara, you'll see there's a Mishnah, and then there's a Gemara going trying to explain and, uh, the, the Mishnah, clarifying the Mishnah. Abaya and Rafa, which we mentioned before, the, these were one of the most esteemed names in the, in, the, in the Gemara. What's very interesting is Abaya's father died before he was born, and his mother died at childbirth. So Abaya was, um, I'm sorry, Abaya was born without any parents. Who raised him? Rava, which was the leading sage during that time. And a lot of, well, yeah, similar to, similar to that uh, scenario. Um, but the difference was, was over here that Abaya and Rabbah had a lot of arguments throughout the entire time. And they were, throughout the entire Gemara, it's all, you'll, you'll find plenty and plenty of disputes found entire, in the entire Gemara with them. The, what they did is, they, what, what did they do? They studied the previous, the previous rabbis, and every rabbi kept on studying the previous rabbi and how they explained this and how they explained that regarding the, regarding the Mishnah. And this went on until the time of Ravina and Ravashi. Ravina and Ravashi is where they also, again, Ravashi saw that it's not the, the law, the, the way that it's happening now, there's going to be more problems. The Jews are going to be dispersed yet again. It's going to be, you know, there's a degradation of the Jewish life. We need to write it down again. We need to write down more information because the Mishnah was not enough. Now we need more information. And this is where the, the Gemara was put into place. The Gemara was put into place, talking about over 60 years of editing and all the rabbis again coming into being. And, it, and also with something very interesting, Rabbi Ashi was also very wealthy and he was also, you know, was able to go and uh, to bring everybody together and to go and discuss and put together the, the Gemara that we know it, uh, we know it today. The, the Gemara came into end by the death of Ravina in the year 499 Common Era, and this is where the Gemara came into a close. The Talmud Yerushalmi, which is not as popular as the Talmud, again, not a great uh, word that I said, but the Talmud Yerushalmi, um, not as greatly studied, I should say, as the Talmud Bavli. Huh? It's not as, which is very true, it's not as clear. This was wrote, written, as you could say, in Eretz Yisrael. The Talmud Bavli was written in Babylon, the Talmud Yerushalmi was written in Eretz Yisrael, and you're fine. This, uh, the Talmud, the, the Talmud Yerushalmi had four generations, as opposed to the seven generations of Talmud Bavli. The four, and the, these generations span from the year, again, from after the Mishnah, from the year about 200 common era to the, about the year 350 common era. You had generation number one, Rabbi Yochanan, you had Reish Lakish, you had generation two, you had Ula and Rabbi Abo, or generation number three, Rabbi Ami and Rabbi Asi, and you also had generation four, Rabbi Zavid. You had, so these are, the way the difference was between the Talmud, um, the Talmud uh, Yerushalmi was that the Talmud Bavli was very organized. Everything was put together, was edited, and was put in together, and the 
Talmud Yerushalmi was put together very, you know, like there were sentences. It was basically put together by Rabbi Yochanan and his disciples, and it's not it's not as organized as the Talmud Babli. So that's why it's very difficult to learn it. So you have one sentence over here referring to this, another sentence referring to something else, and it's just going on in that in that uh, you know in that manner. However. People that think that Talmud Babel and Talmud Shami were not connected were very, very, uh, you know, incorrect. You had the people of the rabbis of Yerushalayim and the rabbis of Babel were constantly corresponding with each other, constantly talking with each other, and, and we see this in both uh, the, the Gemara. After the Gemara was closed, you had a period known as, the rabbis were known as the Safarayim, and after the Safarayim you had the Geonim. After the Geonim, you had, and this is where I want to more focus on, you have something called the Rishonim. The Rishonim, so you think about the Rishonim, you had, uh, this is where the, where the, the rabbis first started codifying the, the Gemara. So the, the, the Gemara that, you know, that we have, it's very difficult to extrapolate the laws, exactly what you need to do it. And even if you, do, you are able to do that, there are some laws in this Gemara, and there are some laws in, the, uh, in a different Gemara, all on the same subject. So what they did was, what, what a lot of the rabbis started to do, especially the Rambam, Maimonides, he started codifying everything by category. Everything by particular category, the halacha is over here, and all the laws. The halacha for this topic, and all the laws. The halacha for this topic, and all the laws. You had very, very three famous ones. The number one, the first one was the Rif, Rabbi Yitzhak Al-Fasi. The second one you had was, uh, you had the Rush. And the third one you had was the, the Rambam Maimonides, who all, the, all these, they codified the law. What they did was, um, is they put the law in together. And this is where the Shulchan Aruch came into, came into being. The Shulchan Aruch, which was, again, you're talking about about a few hundred years after they, they lived, what the Shulchan Aruch did, he says there was, there was a bunch of rabbis who put in their, you know, their works. He combined everything into one book, the Shulchan Aruch. And this was brought down by Rabbi Yosef Kair. What he did was, he, had, he used these three big rabbis, the Rambam, the Rif, and the Rush, and he took the majority view, because let's say if one of them argued with each other, they took the majority view of whatever the halacha was, uh, and that, that's what he brought, brings down into the, into the Shulchan Aruch. The, um, the Shulchan Aruch follows a, and again, I don't know how much I want to get into it, it follows the, the same structure as the Arba Turim, which was brought, was, which was brought down by the Baal Turim, um, and it, this is divided into, into four different categories. Am I losing you uh, uh, yet? Okay, you guys are with me. Okay, okay. so this, uh, just bear with me a little bit over here, and this is, this is important, um, but again, I don't know how much you know, will make a difference to you. The, the part one was the Arachayim. We have the Mishnah Bor, for example, uh, you know, there's, it's an it's a, uh, explanation of, you know, and clarification on the Arachayim. The Arachayim speaks about laws, about prayer, about synagogue, about Shabbat, and all the holidays. Then you have something called the Yardea. The Yardea speaks about laws of kashrut, mourning, laws of family purity. Then you have the Evan Ezra, which speaks about marriage and divorce. And then you have Chosha Mishpah, which speaks about financial damages, uh, laws of the Beddin, of laws of witnesses, and so on and so forth. So these are the four things that the Shulchan Aruch put into, into, into being. And how did he put it into being? Again, he took the majority rule between the Rift Rush and the Rambam. The the Shulchan Aruch was a, Rav Yosef Kara was a Sephardi. And so the Ramah put together the Ashkenazi customs. So where the customs would be different, that there was a gloss that was written in the Shulchan Aruch, and that was by the Rav Moshe Islavish, which is known as the Ramam. Very interesting. The Shulchan Aruch is known as the Shulchan Aruch, which is like a table. The Ramam is known as the Mapa, the tablecloth. As, as on it. So he, he put together the, the Ashkenazi customs where they were different in the, in the customs is between Asfari and Ashkenazi. Okay, so that's where we have, that was a very brief overview of, of where we went from the beginning of time to where we have the halacha that we know it today. And this is where we're majority the, the way that we learn today. Now I want to speak a little bit about the, the Kabbalah. The, um, the Kabbalah, okay, so when I say Kabbalah, what is the first thing that you think in your mind? Which book? The Zohar. Zohar, very good. Anybody say anything else other than Zohar in here? Yeah. No. What? Well, technically, yeah, there's other things also. 
Well, okay, but again, again the majority thing says the 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 is a very very misun- big misunderstanding that Kabbalah is not the Zohar, is not the Zohar. I mean, the Zohar speaks very Kabbalistic things, but that's not the essence of Kabbalah. Kabbalah existed since the beginning of when Moshe Rabbeinu got the Torah from Hashem. Hashem gave him all the information, and He also gave him the Kabbalistic things as well. It wasn't just it was instituted all of a sudden by Rabbi Shem Baruchai during the time of the Zohar. Which, incidentally, the there is a, there was a. A lot of controversy regarding the, the history of the Zohar. We, we don't have the time to go through it, but I'll go through very, very briefly with you. There still is, like, now, though. Which it shouldn't be. People are, like, very, like... Again, and I'm very against I think that's... A, I don't agree with that, but uh, they are, right. Which, which and what I'll present probably today, um, with hopefully the sources, we'll see that there is really no reason to do that. The... One of the big reasons that it becomes problematic is who authored the Zohar. This becomes a very, very controversial. Um, this is a very, very controversial, uh, you know, topic because did re- the when the Zohar came came out, it was it was a credit to be written by somebody by the name of Rabbi Shem Bar Yochai, which is was it lived in the time of we said. Anybody know Rabbi Shem Bar Yochai? No one's listening. Okay, doesn't matter. Okay, so um, uh, you know, who cares? I mean, the time. Very good. Okay, very good. Okay, thank you. So. Um, Success. Okay, so now, who's Rabbi Shem Bachai's Rabbi? Rabbi Akiva. Very good. Okay, excellent. All right. All right, we're getting places. All right. Okay. Welcome, everybody, to the you know, Thursday night's class. Okay. So, um, again, I know th- th- this topic is a little bit heavy, um, so, so bear with me. The, so, the, the controversy was, it was, um, it was written by Rabbi Shem Bachai, but it wasn't in circulation. It wasn't around. All of a sudden, in the 13th century, roughly the 13th century, if I remember correctly, um, Rav Moshe de Leon came out and says, I found the Zohar. He found, and, he, and, he, and he found the Zohar, and he says, listen, this is Zohar from the, you know, Rav Shem and I found it. Now, a lot of people say, okay, did he really find it, or did he actually write it himself? And this is where there was some sort of a dispute. The, one of the main, um, one of the main uh, people that were, that were questioning the authenticity of the Zohar was a rabbi by the name of Rabbi Yitzhak Demin Akko. He was, um, and this you can look in the Shem Agdolim, you can see over here, Shem, you see over here that Rabbi Yitzchak, Rabbi Yitzchak Demin Akko, which obviously lived in Akko, um, he was a Talmud Chavar of the Ramban, of the Maimonides, of Nachmanides, I'm sorry. And he is a very, very huge Kabbalist, quoted many times in the Rishas Chachman and, 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 you know, and other works as well. He questioned the authenticity of the Zohar. The problem was, and if you look at the story, the story, the story is cited in the Sefer Yechsen, and the, the story is abruptly brought to an end before it comes to the conclusion. Did it or did not? He investigated it for, for, for many, many years, and it just abruptly stopped without any conclusion you know, of what happened. Is the, is the author Rabbi Shem Baichai, or really is the author Rabbi, um, Rabbi Shem de Leon? So there was a, um, a manuscript that was uh, presented by Rabbi Arya Kaplan. Why was it presented to Rabbi Arya Kaplan? The recent, uh, you know, recent generation passed away, um, you know, a couple, yeah. quite some, some years ago. Makes, makes sense. I, yeah. So, um, it came into him because they wanted to translate. He was very, very good in translating these type of things. So they came, someone came over to him and says, I have a manuscript of who? Of, I'm sorry, of Rabbi Yitzchak Demin Ako, and I want you to, to translate. This, uh, this is known as the Otsar Achaim. And, he went and he said, Rabbi, Rabbi Kaplan says, I'll translate on one condition, I get to keep this copy. There's only one copy of this in the, in the world, one original in this world, and that is in the Gunzburg Collection in the Lenin Library in Moscow. But this person was able to procure a copy of it. Rabbi, uh, Rabbi Kaplan says, if you want me to translate it on one condition, I get to keep this. And he says, fine. And he went and he translated it. And in there he discovered that it's written there very, very clearly. This is by the same rabbi who questioned the authenticity of the Zohar. And this is why a lot of people nowadays, they question the authenticity 
the Abdullah are the people that actually do. Majority of people don't. They all say that we all know that it's contributed already to Rabbi Shimon Bar but the people that do, they base it off this. And this was discovered, a manuscript that was discovered, that he openly and clearly and unambiguously states very clearly that the Zohar was written by Rabbi Shimon Bar Who said this? Rabbi Yitzhak the Min Akko. The rabbi that went and started questioning the authenticity, he said he came to the conclusion, for some reason this, this manuscript didn't make it to print it, whatever it wasn't, but now we, 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 ha- we found it recently. He says it is, un- it is with 100% validity that this belongs to Rabbi Shimon Bar Yechai and not to Rabbi, De- Rabbi Yitzhak Min Akko. So we see over here that the validity and the authenticity of the Zohar is based off, the writing was off Rabbi Shimon Bar Yechai. So... That being into existent, that being coming into 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 saying the actual um, the actual you know Kabbalah was actually brought down you know before the 13th century when we had the Zohar. And where were this brought down? It was actually brought down in the Gemara. The Gemara has a lot, a lot of Kabbalistic, you know, stuff inside it. However, it's not openly. It's very, very hidden. And it's hidden in something called the Agadita. The Agadita Gemara, so you have the, the about one-seventh of the Gemara speaks about Agadita. The majority of the Gemara speaks about the Halacha, the laws. And then there's Agadita, which appears like stories, parables, mashalim, like things like that. Some people only learn the Agadita. They're only interested in the stories. Those people generally don't understand what they're talking about. Then there are some people that only learn the Agadita. Also, very, very Big Victor Mel says call, he calls them mental cripples. Um, if they go and they only learn one without the other, because you need both. Why do you need both? Number one, you need to learn the laws, but you also need to learn how to behave and how to die. And there's many, many secrets that are actually that are actually brought down in the Agadatas. Now, the, um, the 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 sages, the rabbis who wrote the Talmud were masters of Kabbalah. They were a huge Kabbalist. And they couldn't just put the Kabbalah straight out written in there, so they hid it. How did they hit it? They hid it through stories, they hid it through different things. Now when you read the story, you'll be like, okay, very cool. You completely missed the, the, the entire boat of the, of the entire uh, Agatha. It's all hidden over there. The, the reason is, is that when somebody's impatient and just runs through the Gemara, they're not going to understand the, the Kabbalistic things. And that's what they wanted. They wanted the impatient reader, the person who doesn't really actually care to, you know, the Kabbalah is not for you. you know, and you're not, you don't get it. The people, the people that actually delve and learn into the Gemara, it, it, you know, in the way that it should be learned, they're the ones that are able to actually stand the Kabbalistic, uh, you know, intentions that the, that, the, that the rabbis intended. One of the, you know, the idea was is also that the Torah needed to be written down. But again, the Torah, it wasn't supposed to be written down. Was, the oral Torah was supposed to be kept orally. So the sages, even in the Gemara, they still kept it in oral tradition. They, it's, it's hidden in here, but how are you going to find it through your rabbis, through, you know, learning it through, um, you know, through previous um, you know, rabbis who understand it from their rabbis and so on and so forth. The Shlub brings down that there are, uh, there, the, the secrets are hidden all in the Agadita. In the Agadita. the Gemara writes also that the Agadita contains all the secrets are all in the Agaditas. And you have many, many others. Rambam also brings down, he says that, you know, the entire world, all the secrets were taught to Moshe Rabbeinu. And this was all brought down, and it's all, it's all hidden, but it's all, you know, in different places, that these, are, these are hidden. The, what's very interesting is that the Kabbalah was supposed to be kept a secret, but only until the, the, the Zohar says that in the later generations, right before Mashiach comes, the, Zohar is gonna, the Kabbalah is going to be spread out the entire world. Says Rav Yaakov Hillel, a very big Kabbalist nowadays, he says that this has already happened already in our generation. We have the spread of Kabbalah already came about. We have it over here, the rulings of many halachic authorities are all based off Kabbalah, which I don't understand. The people says, no, we don't learn Kabbalah, we don't understand Kabbalah. Garyant, the majority of people should not be learning Kabbalah. This is meant for the, you know, for the top of the top. But a lot of halachic rulings that we have is based off Kabbalah. Um, and even furthermore, we have many of our prayers are based off Kabbalah. We have all, you know, Ravilla also notes that 
practically all books written on character development, you look at, for example, Misrati Sharim, they're all based very heavily on Kabbalah. Now, it doesn't say over there the secrets of Kabbalah over there, but it's all based off it. If you know the Kabbalah, you'll be able to go and you'll be able to figure it out. So, two questions very quickly. What's the exact definition of the word Kabbalah? Kabbalah literally means a transmission from rabbi to student. It was, you know, you, you received it. Kabbalah from, you know, from that. something comes from Kabbalah, it was passed on, but it was passed on in a secret. It was passed on just by the select few. Generally, the way that Kabbalah, you know, the, the secrets of the Torah wasn't just taught to everybody. A very, very select few were taught the, the secrets. And they taught to their, the people that they chose who the select few was going to be. This was not meant for everybody to know, only for a particular, uh, you know, group. Comment. Um, we're going to get to that. You, that's my next thing that I was going to speak about. It. Chassid, chassidut, what? What's the difference today? Like, why is it not? Ah, oh, very good. Why? Very good. So we'll speak about that also. So first of all, before we get that, we have to answer your comment, which I answered, just, in, you know, uh, develop on it. The Hasidus that we have today is very, very strongly, you know, enveloped in Kabbalah. There, a lot of the Hasidic works are all, you know, very, very deeply rooted in, in Kabbalah. Now the question is, why nowadays do we have it so spread out when the previous generation, we, we didn't have it? And the answer is... Very good. We needed it. You see, some people didn't even need to come today. Uh, so, uh, I was just kidding. Um, uh, or maybe I'm not. I don't know. Um, uh, the, we, we need, be, in the previous generations, they were on such a high level, uh, and not a high level of understanding the Torah, a high level of having fear of God. Did the rabbis tell you this is what you need to do? Oh, fine. We understand it. Nowadays, the rabbis tell you something. How do you know? Who are you to tell me? Like, can you prove it to me? Can you prove me the Torah is divine? We didn't have this in the previous generation. Now we needed all of a sudden that the Kabbalah be spread out. Now all the secrets that were kept secrets no longer are able to be kept secrets. People need it, unfortunately. We're sunk into such a level that we need the Kabbalah. We need to be able to understand the secrets of the, in order to be able to understand the foundations of the Torah. And this is why we have it, you know, nowadays that we have the Kabbalah has spread out the entire world. The, and this is why we're not, we don't have time to speak about it now because it's late, but there is a lot of information when you're learning Agadita, and especially when you're dealing with, let's say, scientific information in the Gemara, be like, aha, well, you see over here, the Gemara over here doesn't make sense according to the scientific you know, understanding that we have nowadays. The first question that you have to ask is, do you understand the Gemara? Just because it says something straightforward doesn't mean that's what it means. The Gemara, the Agadita, all these scientific, there's many things that are, A, written the way that it's meant to be understood. Number three, number, number two, well, number two, right, number three, if you're not counting, is that the secrets are actually written in it. So what you actually read is not exactly all that it means. There's a lot more that delves into it. So what you think is a contradiction is not really a contradiction. You don't even know how to read the Gemara. So unfortunately, people, how do they read the Gemara? They read some online translation and be like, ah, you see a translation, you know, this is a, when, if you don't understand the Gemara, you're not going to be able to read and you're not going to be able to understand the, really if there is a contradiction, if there's not a contradiction, what really the Gemara is referring to over here because they're all very, very deep secrets that we're dealing with over here. This is how, and now this, so this is basically, I guess this was a very, very quick overview since the beginning of time to the, Gemara, to the Torah that we have nowadays. Why did I bring this into, into effect? First of all, this answers a lot of questions. It might not answer to you, but many people have many questions. Was the, the Torah first? The Torah was copied? The, you know, how did the Torah come into existence? And this is going to be also lay a foundation for our next couple of classes that we're going to speak about how the rabbis came and how the rabbis learned the Torah, how the rabbis were able to interpret the Torah, how the rabbis instituted laws, how do we have machloket and so on and so forth that we have in the, uh, you know, in the Torah, in the oral law, in the written law, and so on and so forth. Well, the written law is not Mahalogos. Any questions? Yeah. Go ahead. Um, so then, if we only need Kabbalah because we're on a lesser level, because we can't accept what the rabbi says, yeah. isn't it not a good thing to learn Kabbalah? Well, for the majority of people, the way that you have it nowadays with the Baal Tshuva movement, they just don't, they don't even know Aleph base. They want to learn Kabbalah already. 
They have people that don't know anything and they want to learn the Tanya. You know, I was asked already. To the, the Tanya is a, is a very Kabbalistic book. Like, there's a very, it's very deep. There's a lot of things. The, you know, I, I tell people all the time, you're beginning, don't, what do you learn Kabbalah for? No, you learn, you're first on the basics. Learn the Chumash, learn the Kamara. Before you even start even thinking about Kabbalah, you have to learn that you have to have a very, very strong understanding of the basics. If you don't, you're going to just, you're going to bring more problems, more questions, more things yourself. Granted, you, you know, you should not learn Kabbalah until you're on a very, very high level and your rabbis learn it together with you, even nowadays. However, nowadays, for example, also what I, what I teach, I teach a lot of Kabbalistic concepts. Uh, I don't actually go delve into, you know, into ca- in, in Kabbalah per se, but I teach Kabbalistic concepts. So we speak about reincarnation. We speak about different things that are based off Kabbalah, but we don't. Go, if you realize, we don't go into very, very strong depths and details in, in you know, in these subjects, because that you do need to be in a very, very high level, and you have to have a very strong understanding of the oral law, the written law, and everything, uh, you know, all the halachot and so on and so forth. So. Nowadays, when you read all these things, they're just all based off Kabbalistic ideas. That's not a problem to read. You know, I read all these Musab books, and you should read it. All these things that even though they have Kabbalistic concepts inside them, you should still go and still read it. You know, the, any of the Ramchal books. Ramchal was a huge Kabbalist. So you have, a, you know, Der Hashem. You know, all these things are very, very heavy in Kabbalah, but it might not look to you at Kabbalah because, you know, we don't really understand Kabbalah. We, we know, with, you know, you know there's many people who think they know, yeah, yeah, I, I learned Kabbalah with my rabbi. I'm like, do you know how to spell Kabbalah in Hebrew? You know? <laughs> And you know, and that should answer any of my further questions. I need it. Uh, any other questions? Yeah. Um, kind of. um, like, in prophecy, because you, you mentioned that like before, was it like, like, did like they hear God's like voice, or they got like ideas in their head, and like? They no, they heard the voice. They heard the voice. Yeah. Is that also how like the whole Torah and everything was also like, through, like Hashem's voice? It was written through yeah, it was written through prophecy. It was like it was Moshe when he wrote the Torah, it was like a secretary dictating what God was telling him to write. That's how that's how it was. But the Mishnah Kamara were not written like that. They were written off of just ideas. Divine from but it was still written with divine inspiration. Right. Okay. Ruach HaKodesh. Yeah. Cool. It was still, Do we still have that like now? You have the biggest rabbis in the world. They do have, and, and I, I have had personal stories when I've met with big, big rabbis that they were telling me stuff, or I heard things, that, you know, directly from them. That there was no way that they would, that it's like it was like, it was just like you know crazy. I'll tell you, uh, um, I don't know if I ever said this, and my brother hears this, he's not going to be so happy that I'm telling the story. Um, we went, uh, uh, but again, no one knows which brother it was. Okay, so um, uh, when my fam, we went, we were in Eretz Yisrael. We were in Israel not too long ago, um, maybe a year or two ago, I don't remember, um, for a family wedding. And we all went to Reb Chaim Kanievsky, which is one of the good old days during, you know, during, you know, in our generation. And Reb Chaim Kanievsky, he's very particular that a man should not wear a watch. A man should not wear a watch. Oh, whatever reasons, we're not going to get into it. He doesn't want a man to wear a watch. We all went in to see him. Uh, we were able, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't a group of people. It was just us, just my family. Went to, we went to see him. And what's so amazing about Rabbi Chaim Kanievsky, and this is something that I recommend whoever's in Israel to go and try to see him, even if it's not just for a bracha, just to see how he learns what other people are around him. It was so unbelievable. Because you have people, and by people I mean me, um, who are like sitting behind Rabbi Chaim Kanievsky, like taking a picture with him, and he doesn't even look up. It's not like he's like posing. You know, you know, it's not like he's doing. He's not. He is looking in the Gemara the entire time. Like there are people walking nowadays. You know, I teach. You know, Baruch Hashem, I teach in a few different locations. Every single class without a fail, a door opens. 
Everyone looks over there. Everyone's there. Rabbi Chaim Ganiyevsky, you could have someone standing two inches away from him. He's still in the Gemara. He's not looking up. He's, uh, the doors are opening. People are talking. People are screaming. He is over there. He's sitting over there. You see his finger go down. The finger doesn't go side by side. His fingers go straight down. That's how he reads. He just scans through it like that. It looks like he's a, you know, like a photocopy machine, just like a, you know, whatever it is. He's like scanning through the entire thing. And you're, he's going over there. People are taking pictures with him. People are doing that. He doesn't look up. When does he look up? The second that his gabai, which is, let's say his grandson, whatever it is, screams at him, you know, you know, the rabbi, you know, there are people here, they want a bracha. He looks up for a second, he says bua, which stands for bracha, not slacha, whatever it is, and maybe he goes a little bit more, depending if you ask him a question, and he goes right back down. He, he doesn't waste a second, this rabbi, doesn't waste a single second, every single second is, is inside over there. So, we're sitting over there, my entire family, and, I don't know, no one told us that you're not supposed to wear, you know, watches, he's very against, you know, men wearing watches. My brother had a watch on, and he walks, we all walk into the room. Abraham Knievsky was sitting there and he was learning inside over here. He, suddenly he looks up, someone has a watch, please take it off right now. And he goes right back inside over there. Oh, Nothing at like that. Watch. And I, I was like, you know, and my brother's like, you know, he takes it off quickly, puts it in his pocket, you know, you know, you know. They tell, they also, they told me, he says, make sure you don't bring any smartphones either in there. He says, put, take, leave your smartphones in the car. So, so, um, something called, all right, no watches, no smartphone, right? You got a pocket watch. Huh? It's a minhag to give like hustle. Whatever, I'm not going to get into the whole idea with watches now, the halacha and what he, you know, this. So, yeah, you got to get get put in your vest. Um, this is particularly for men, not for women. For women, it's a, it's, it's a problem. But you see over here, like eyewitnesses firsthand, like how, how did he know that? How did, would he have a metal detector, you know, like going in over there and be like, okay, you know, scrolls up his iPad. Of course not. You're talking about rabbis have a different level. I have a few other stories, which we don't, uh, you know, I probably can't say so much on camera that, that, that whatever it is, he's on a different level than anybody else. Yeah. So why doesn't he like the Oh, I don't want to get into that. So <laughs> that's, uh, that's a, another topic in his entirety with the halacha, the Begit Isha, whatever, different things on, uh, you know, on, on what he holds on, on watches. So is Agada um, or Kabbalistic ideas hidden inside the Gemara. But it's not Kabbalistic concepts. Well, Kabbalah. it depends on which Gemara, depending on, the, yeah, it's, it's, you know, Kabbalah is hidden inside there. Yeah. Any other uh, questions? Um, is it like real, like, Kabbalah, like, like, meditation and, like, saying, like, divine names and all that stuff? Well, do, I don't, you know, again, it doesn't, yeah, so it doesn't speak better than that essence per se in the majority of a guy though. But you do have different things that are very that that, that do hint to, the, to these deep stuff. Now, not everything does. Now, uh, granted, the majority of that actual the heavy Kabbalah, we're talking about Shemus Hakadoshim and the and the Machshavas and the and the meditations that you need to have. That's ready, like you know, serious Kabbalistic oh, stuff. Yeah. You have the Zara, you have the you know, the, you know, you have different Kabbalists throughout the time. The Rizal brought down how he's supposed to have the Kabbanas. You have a lot of different uh, you know the You have a lot of different Kabbalists that go and explain on how the you know the Kabbanas that you have to have. That was majority was kept off by. Uh, um, rabbi, the student, but even those, the Shemus Hakadoshim, those are all hid- hidden uh, very secretly in the in the actual in the or in the written law in the Chumash. The the names of a god is all there. It's all you know different letters, squib, scripts, whatever. There's there's a very it's all there. Any other questions? Yeah. So that's a very good question. How do we know that maybe rabbis made a mistake and completely, you know, you know, twisted, the, you know, the idea in that? Bizarre Hashem, I would want to speak about it in um, in the coming classes. If you know the rab, did the rabbis make up any laws? Did they, you know, how did they mess it up? How did they come to that conclusion? So well, Bizarre Hashem, we'll speak about that. Excellent question. Well, we'll speak about that because that's a whole class in itself. Any other questions? No. Okay. 
You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.